0: Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Alright, you're going to have to guide me with all of this.
1: What do you mean?
0: I mean, when we go into... Kino Kunia Cunha, and Midtown Comics. I'm going to n- rely on you to help me pick out some comics and graphic novels for our nephew and Nibley.
1: Okay, I'm more than happy to help, but I'm sure you can also pick things out just as well. No, nope,
0: nope, 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 nope. I am completely blind and ignorant when it comes to this stuff. The only experience I have with graphic novels is the show we saw last night. Besides that, I've seen a few X-Men movies, and that's about it.
1: You're kidding, right? You didn't watch any anime growing up? Nope. Dragon Ball Z?
0: Came after I lost interest in cartoons.
1: Pokemon?
0: The one time I did anything with Pokemon was to impress a girl. I still have no idea what the hell the game is.
1: Comic books! You had to have comic books as a kid.
0: I was more into model airplanes than superheroes.
1: Okay, yeah. I am going to take t- going to have to take the lead on this one.
0: Good idea.
1: I'm starting to wonder if you had a sad childhood.
0: Hey, don't be bashing on my model airplanes. They were really cool.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today
0: we are going to be discussing the groundbreaking musical, Fun Home.
1: So hurry and take your seats, it looks like the show is starting.
0: Hello everyone and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. And welcome to our house on Maple Avenue. See how we polish and we shine. And nothing shined brighter during the 2015 Broadway season than our show today, Fun Home.
1: This powerful and deep new musical arrived on Broadway at a very pivotal moment, not only for Broadway, but also for the country and a new story was told by a very new character that audiences welcomed into their hearts again and again.
0: But before we can head to the Bechtel funeral home, we first have to lay the scene and the groundwork.
1: Writer-artist Alison Bechtel's book, Fun Home, a memoir in graphic novel format, was published in 2006 to critical acclaim. Its subject is Alison Bechtel's coming of age with particular emphasis on her relationship to her father, Bruce. Bechdel's coming out as a lesbian is complicated by the revelation that Bruce was a closeted homosexual with extramarital affairs, including underage males. Four months after Bechtel comes out to her parents, Bruce is killed by an oncoming truck. Although the evidence is equivocal, Bechtel concludes that he committed suicide.
0: Bechtel's book was adapted into a musical with book and lyrics by Lisa Crone and music by Janine Tesori. Writing in Slate, June Thomas called it, quote, the first mainstream musical about a young lesbian, end quote. The adaptation was developed over the course of five years. It was first workshopped at the Ojai Playwrights Conference in August 2009.
1: A staged reading was performed at the Public Theater in 2011. Of the cast of that staged reading, only Judy Kuhn and Beth Malone continued in their roles to the full Off-Broadway production.
0: The musical had another workshop as part of the Sundance Institute's Theater Lab in July 2012, featuring Rao Esperanza. Following that, it ran for three weeks as part of the Public Theater's Public Lab series in October and November of 2012.
1: On April 8, 2013, musical selections from the show were performed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, Judy Kuhn, David Hyde Pierce, and others at an event for the Sundance Institute. A final Public Theater workshop was held on May 2013.
0: The musical's development process entailed extensive changes and rewrites. Beth Malone said the original workshop script quote doesn't resemble the current play at all. End quote. In early versions, the production was structured around Bechtel's drawings, but the creators later removed most of this element, save for one image of Bruce and Young Allison, which is used at the musical's conclusion.
1: Revisions continued through the preview period of the off-Broadway production, requiring the actors to perform new material every night. Bechtel did not participate in the musical's creation. She expected her story to seem artificial and distant on stage, but she came to feel that the musical had the opposite effect, bringing the emotional heart of the story closer than, it, than even her book did.
0: Fun Home premiered off-Broadway at the Public Theater in previews on September 30th, 2013, and opened officially on October 22nd, 2013. Originally scheduled to run through November 3rd of that year, the run was extended several times, and the musical closed on January 12th, 2014
1: in response to a controversy in which the legislature of south carolina attempted to financially punish the college of charleston for choosing the original graphic novel of fun home as a reading selection for incoming freshmen the off-broadway cast presented a concert of songs from the musical to a full house in charleston south carolina in april 2014 bechtel corn Tessori and musical director Chris Fenwick accompanied the cast.
0: It was now time for the show to make its way uptown to Broadway, which also makes this the perfect time to introduce our design team. The book and lyrics were by Lisa Crone, music by Janine Tessori, based on the graphic novel by Alison Bechtel, directed by Sam Gold, choreography by Danny Mefford, Scenic and Costume Design by David Zinn, Lighting Design by Ben Stanton, Video Content by Lucky McKinnon, Sound Design by Kai Harada, and Hair and Wig Design by Paul Huntley.
1: Fun Home would bring its Maple Avenue Home to the Circle in the Square Theater on April 19, 2015, where it would remain for over a year playing 583 performances and closing on September 10, 2016.
0: In December 2015, 8 months after opening on Broadway, the show recouped its capitalization and began to make a profit. Costs for the show were relatively low due to a small cast and orchestra.
1: The show would go on to have a U.S. national tour and be produced in Singapore, London, and Australia.
0: That season, Fun Home would be nominated for 12 Tony Awards and drive away with five. Best Direction of a Musical for Sam Gold. Best Book of a Musical for Lisa Kron, Best Original Score for Janine Tesori and Lisa Crone, Best Actor in a Musical in a Leading Role for Michael Cerverus, who played Bruce Bechtel, and Best New Musical.
1: So let's grab our ring of keys and our ring code of love and dive into our story. Mm-hmm. She works on her memoir in present day, successful middle-aged cartoonist Alison Bechtel, Alison, recalls two time periods in her life.
0: The first is her childhood, around age 10, or small Alison, when she struggles against her father Bruce's obsessive demands and begins to identify her inchoate sexuality.
1: The second is her first year of college, Medium Allison, when she begins her first relationship and comes out of the closet as a lesbian.
0: Allison remembers herself as a child, demanding that her father Bruce play Airplane with her, while he sorts through a box of junk and valuables he has salvaged from a barn.
1: Bruce tells the family that a visitor from the local historical society is coming to see their ornate Victorian home that he has restored. And his wife, Helen, prepares the house to Bruce's demanding aesthetic standard.
0: In a phone call with her father and a journal entry, Medium Allison expresses her anxiety about starting college.
1: At the Bechtel Funeral Home, small Allison and her brothers John and Christian perform an imaginary advertisement for the funeral home.
0: Medium Allison hesitates outside the door of the college's gay union and is flummoxed when she meets Joan, a confident young lesbian.
1: Bruce invites Roy, a young man whom he has hired to do yard work, into the house. Bruce begins to seduce Roy in the library, while Helen is playing the piano upstairs, trying her best to ignore it.
0: Medium Allison writes a letter to her parents about college life, but does not mention Joan or her recent realization that she is a lesbian.
1: Bruce orders small Allison to put on a dress, but she would rather wear jeans. Bruce tells her that the other children would laugh at her. She reluctantly obeys him.
0: Medium Allison proudly tells Joan that she has written a letter to her parents telling them that she is a lesbian, but begins to second-guess herself until Joan kisses her. That night, she is delirious with joy after having had sex with Joan and finally discovering her own sexuality.
1: Allison considers the connection between her coming out and her father's death.
0: Small Allison has a homework assignment to draw a map of places her family has been to, but Bruce aggressively takes over, drawing it the way he thinks it should look.
1: Allison realizes that despite having traveled widely, her father's place of birth, life, work, and death can all be placed in a small circle in Beech Creek, Pennsylvania.
0: Bruce offers a ride and a beer to an underage boy and it is later implied that they had a sexual encounter.
1: Medium Allison writes to her parents asking for a response to her coming out letter.
0: Small Allison watches the Partridge family, but Bruce angrily switches it off. Small Allison talks to him and finds out that he is going to see a psychiatrist, but is ambiguous about the reason.
1: Allison expresses annoyance that he lied to her. The reason he was going was because he was arrested for what he did to the underage boy. Helen attempts to reassure small Allison that the psychiatrist will help her father, but she too refuses to elaborate.
0: Bruce starts a vicious argument with Helen and breaks several of her possessions along with some library books. Small Allison fantasizes about her family as the happy family singing together on television.
1: Allison remembers a time when Bruce took her and her brothers on a trip to New York City. After a long day, Small Allison, Christian, and John settle into sleeping bags.
0: Small Allison wakes up and catches Bruce sneaking out. Bruce sings her a lullaby. He reassures his daughter that he's just going out for a paper. But Allison realizes he was probably going cruising
1: medium allison is angered by a non-committal letter from bruce responding to her coming out
0: at a luncheon night with her father small allison notices a butch delivery woman and feels an inexplicable kinship with her
1: medium allison calls home to demand a better response from her parents and is astonished when her mother reveals that her father has had sexual relationships with men and boys
0: Allison explores the tensions her family was under at this time and watches a heated argument between her parents.
1: Medium Allison returns home for vacation with Joan. Helen confesses to Medium Allison her troubled and turbulent life with Bruce.
0: Medium Allison, Joan, and Bruce have an unexpectedly pleasant evening around the piano. Bruce asks Allison if she'd like to go for a drive, and adult allison realizes that medium allison is gone she joins her father in the car breaking the boundaries of time on the drive she and bruce struggle to express themselves to each other
1: bruce manically engaged in a new restoration project tries and fails to find a way to hold his life together he steps in front of a truck and is killed
0: allison newly reconciled to her past remembers and draws a moment of perfect balance, playing Airplane with her father while reminiscing about the past with other Allisons. The End for us to discuss the parts that we liked or maybe needed a little bit of improvement. Scooby-Doo, wow. Something nev- some things never change. It's 2024 and I'm not kicking this. So, no, I first I just want to get out in front and just say I loved this show. I didn't expect to love this show as much as I did, but I did. I truly love this show and i think the brilliance of this show lies in its simplicity top to bottom in a season full of really big you know musicals you know i'm thinking of shows we'll cover later like something rotten and whatnot this was a very simple and i don't want to say minimalist show and of course we'll we'll break down each subset as we go but i think the brilliance is that it was so simplistic
1: so I think that the the main thing that I loved about this show was the doorway to queer culture that I didn't know I was about to stumble into, and I think that the like as far as a story goes, it's a beautifully told story with a beginning, a middle, and end that is all happening simultaneously. Yet there's a nice like pace to it.
0: It's, a, it's almost like a modern cabaret, if you will, because yeah. we have the present day Allison telling this story, like remembering this story, but actively also getting to reflect and comment on it. So though these memories are being played out again, and there's no change to it, like we're seeing her m- memories relived, we also get to hear her present day reaction to it. Right, you know, which I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about that opening number, the way it abruptly ends, you know, where she goes. Caption: My father and I, my father and I, my father, my father, as he walks off, you know, and she remembers that that difficult relationship. So she gets to start to reevaluate and and it's almost like therapy and yeah. realize those moments in life and how she got here and how her relationship with her dad and and how maybe her dad and her weren't so different. And it's
1: just such a brilliant story in the way that it's told. And I think a large portion of that is... So this is one of the first major musicals to have a completely female creative team. At least when it comes to... It was the first. Yeah, it was the first. And so I think their approach is definitely reflective of a feminine mindset especially in the way that it it is displayed like a comic book where there's a clear beginning middle and end but we can sometimes go to different panels at different moments and there's sometimes that abrupt jagged you know split panel where you're like living in the present and in the past at the same time and so I think that having the consciousness of the the female collective mindset is one of the things that makes this a unique way of storytelling.
0: Well, and something else that I love is that I've noticed when we see a show that deals with multiple points in time, particularly going back in the past and coming through, we deal with, I don't know what to call it, I guess the the pegged stool, if you will, the three different ages, you know, Mm -hmm. and this again had that. We had the child, the adolescent, and the adult. And what I loved about that is they were fully developed. They were very innocent. But there was a, we, we didn't go to, the, like, it wasn't in order. Yeah. And so all, all three characters were present throughout the entirety of the show. And to me, that was really important because it it showed how almost there were three Alicens. Well, there were three Allisons but it showed how all three Allisons kind of went through the same development three different ways.
1: Right. They were just different guises of how she viewed what had happened in her life. Exactly. And I think that the best way to really get an understanding for what we're talking about is to break it down into our little boxes, our individual breakdown of the elements. Yes. So let's get into it.
0: So let's start with the set. I keep mentioning that this was a... And again, I don't want to use the term minimalistic. It was simple. set. So this was, as we mentioned, in the Circle and the Square Theater, which I love the Circle and the Square Theater. It is, to me, the most intimate theater on Broadway. Now, ironically, it is not the smallest theater. That goes to the Helen Hayes. But I just feel... Like, every show I've seen at this theater, it just feels more intimate. And walking into this theater and the set that they had... It felt like you were walking into someone's home. I particularly remember that chandelier that hung in the the center. But see the thing is is it wasn't a chandelier like it was gaudy or anything like that. No 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 no. It was like almost like a dining room chandelier, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like
1: something that you would have found in in that area of time where we moved from like the nineteen hundreds into like the thirties, forties, fifties. Very
0: much the mid-Atlantic well, I mean they're based in Pennsylvania, so very much like that. Pennsylvania home. This is a nice piece of furniture they might have found in an antique shop.
1: Or it had been with the house for a very long time. Right,
0: but it's not like a crystal chandelier by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. It's just like a nice lighting fixture. So I remember that being in the center. The stage was this nice like wood floor. The orchestra was over by a vom that was entrance, but they fit in with it. And then you had like this furniture. I mean, every, it just looked like a house. And one thing I really appreciated about the set design, which was brilliantly done by David Zinn, was the use of basically the the set being able to come up through the ground. So rather than bringing pieces on from the volumes or whatnot, these pieces would just come up from the ground to show these different spaces.
1: Right, and in that way, it felt like a creation sandbox because everything, you know, the set would get lowered, they'd add something to it, it'd come back up, it had ups and downs. Right,
0: the bed and, would come up, the couch would so come it And really,
1: so it really felt like that comic book where it's like, oh, hey, we're going to create this thing. Never mind, take it down, we're going to well, add this thing. That's exactly
0: it. So I felt like it was like turning a page. Yeah. So it's like you turn the page and then the bench would go down. Mm-hmm. or uh, you turn the page again and all of a sudden this bookcase would come out so I thought just that movement helped to reiterate the comic book the, well well, I, I don't want to call it a comic book it's not a comic book it's a uh, what, what uh, a graphic, a, novel? A graphic novel thank you it's a graphic novel that the show is based off of and I felt like they really did that that mm. n- taking that into account the way the set would move really helped emphasize that and bring that graphic novel into, you know, the, the real world, that 4D experience. Yeah.
1: The last thing I want to say about the set that I also think is going to be a large portion of the spoilers is we know that Allison's dad dies. He commits suicide. And in this show, there is one moment where he has kind of his own song before he dies. And in it, they use... edges of the world, right. Yes. And that's where they use the set and the lights together to look like the world is literally falling beneath him. Right. And it is one of the most beautiful descents into sadness and depression that I've ever seen. Because you just saw how he, like physically and mentally, the floor was coming out from underneath him.
0: Well, and and I want to move to lights (laughs) next. You know, we're going to change the order up a little bit. But I want to say one more thing. That another... Well, there's, I want to say two things. Because there's two very oh. important, I think, moments to me that really stand out. And one of them is, of course, there's a coffin. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with a lot of the promotion, you had these three kids in a coffin. And you weren't really sure, like, what? Why? And they're dan- and then there's these bright colors, and you're like, what? And of course, fun home means funeral home in the show. Come to the fun home, the Bechtel Funeral Home you know.
1: Right, because and, you had these kids who grew up living in a funeral well, home. They, they
0: lived next to, the family business right, was a they, funeral home. they
1: lived in in the funeral home. this funeral home, and so it was kind of this, the way that these children had accepted death into their everyday life, is that it's not just a funeral home, it's a fun home. Well, it's just,
0: it, 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 they didn't view death the same way we did, or right. we do, and so, but it it was, if you didn't know the show, or you didn't know the, the, the the, the, the construct or the placement, it's a little jarring. You're like, why are there three children dancing in a, in a coffin? And I thought that was really... I don't want to... The thing is, is it could be uh, morose or whatever. But then when you see it in context, in the show, I mean, uh, coffins are very off-putting for me usually. When we saw Christmas Carol recently, the Jefferson Mays one, right? it was very off-putting to see that with the smoke coming out, you know? I don't like coffins. And yet with this, I was like, it's not so much a coffin. It's just like a fun little playhouse. Well, you know? I mean,
1: but th- that also goes to speak to a larger story of about how we as humans have become disconnected with death. It used to be something we were very physically hands-on a part of, and now we've removed ourselves. So I think that that, they had an interesting time marketing this show because Allison's world is very different than the normal lived experience.
0: Right. And then the other thing I want to say is when middle Allison comes home with Joan with girlfriend towards the end and the house is transformed right? Seeing the stage transform was absolutely incredible because we talked about again how the things come out of the ground And they did, you know, the, the entrance for Allison and Joan was up in the audience. They come from in the back, you know, and so our focus is there. And while we are looking at them, the stage is transformed and then they kind of make their entrance in your jungle. Oh my God. You know, and we then look at the stage and we see it's not like it was in the beginning of the show.
1: There's Mm -hmm. a lot
0: fancier furniture and whatnot. And it, it was incredible. It was amazing to see that transformation happen. So the, you know, David Zinn did a really great job of creating that through line and creating that experience. And really bringing Allison's father's personality, that neurotic personality into the set itself. It, I mean, that really connected. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So now I want to go on to the lights. Normally we would go on to costumes, but I feel like the set and the lights, they just go hand in hand, and I've been really excited to talk about this because we had mentioned that the set, the way it moved and everything, really read like graphic novel, and see, this is where I feel like the lights really brought that out. We, of course, had that soft yellow lighting, soft white lighting, you know, that looked realistic like a home, and that was something I appreciated. Normally, you get a lot of a white light to illuminate, the stage right Mm -hmm. this i mean truly it could have been like your typical 60 watt ge light bulb that you put in a lamp that was the shade that they were using to light the stage which was really great it felt very homey right but when we had some of these other numbers like come to the fun home or everything's all right when we're together right you had these great colors these awesome 1970s colors right right But not only did we have these colors, it was these shapes that were projected on the stage. These great geometric shapes, these squares and that. And it looked, if you, there's some great pictures online you can find. It (laughs) looks like a graphic novel moment. So it's really cool in that aspect to be able to, I don't know, just to to be able to, to take something from the page and put it on the stage visually. You know, I thought, and I didn't catch that when we saw it in that moment, but again, hindsight's twenty twenty. So I look back now and I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, that what a wonderful, you know, watching the kids dance in the coffin and seeing those lights. It looks like a graphic novel, you know? The other great lighting effect to me was when Allison, and what's great is it's, it's older Allison, mm-hmm. when it's supposed to be middle Allison, but we have this moment of the two timelines, if you will, kind of intersecting, takes that final ride with her father and she sings Telephone Wire and we see the Telephone Wire going, you know, by up and down, right? Mm-hmm. Except it's not a physical Telephone Wire. It's a lighting effect. Yeah. It's like a projection. But you,
1: And you just, you feel like you're in the car riding. Right. And you can, you at least for me, I was able to Go back to those moments when I was younger
0: and staring and, out the window and, and you didn't could, have
1: a phone and just would stare
0: and you would see the telephone the wires telephone go down wire and, and you just yep. follow
1: it with your eyes and you know, yeah. And so I was just like, This
0: is again, it's that simplicity that made it so brilliant. So having these moments where we could experience the, that intimacy and that lighting just created that that moment where it was like hey audience lean in a little and and let's just observe this moment i also appreciated that the way that the lighting directed your focus because there was a lot of action that would happen on opposite ends of the stage you know Mm -hmm. so that when one moment happened wrapped up we jumped to the other side of the stage and vice versa so yeah i really like that and of course iconically when her father does Get hit by the truck. In the end, at the end of *Edges of the World*, he gets hit, and we hear the ho- truck horn, and, we and see- it's a big burst of light.
1: And there's two headlights. Yeah. yeah, it's two big bursts of light.
0: And that's it, and which is great. I mean, that's all we. And it could have been like you know, sometime uh, 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 in *Rent*, they have the motorcycle handles that you can see,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or whatnot. No, they just use two lights, and we finish the sentence. We know what's happening. The simplicity is what made it so great to me, you know? So let's double back now. Let's go back to the costumes because I love these costumes. So the first thing I just want to get out of the way with costumes that I loved is Allison's costume. Essentially the same. Whether it was grown Allison, middle Allison, or little Allison. Now, little Allison's was... More purple with some pink, but they were all striped shirts. Mm-hmm. And, of course, middle Allison and grown Allison really were about the same, that red and white stripe. But they were all striped shirts all the way through. That was their outfit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Her father, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Bruce? Thank you, Bruce, was always, always put together.
1: Yes, well, and I feel like the, so the costumes are very simple because we're dealing with a very simple time we're dealing with everyday people and so we have just you know everyday people clothes which can be really hard to still use the costumes to tell that story but it really helped give us an idea of like her mom was very muted and mousy because she just kind of went with the flow and you had her father who was very much always put together he He projected his insecurities in his clothing. You have Allison who, she, you know, one of the songs they talk about, the way that they start the scene is about how they, she's supposed to wear this party dress and she doesn't want to wear a party dress because she wants to wear pants because she likes pants. And you kind of get to see that gender exploration and that self-expression that you develop as a child kind of develop in this Allison going, I don't think I like that. And then she has her sexual awakening and realizes that she likes girls instead of guys. And then you see, you know, Allison, middle Allison, who is actually acting on those feelings and how her cost, her her clothing choices reflect what her younger self was, but also the new person she's becoming. So that by the time we get to adult Allison, you kind of understand where she made her choices leading up to that point as to being why she'd be wearing those clothing.
0: Yes. I love all of that. I also just want to comment that I did not like the fact that Bruce basically reaffirms gender roles by saying that if you don't wear a dress, everyone's going to notice and laugh at you and everything. And so she decided to wear the dress. And I'm like, that's that's not okay, right?
1: Right, but... That's the that's the thing I also appreciate about this show is it's creating another historical reference about what, what queer people experienced growing up, especially in a world where being gay and queer wasn't accepted. Because you have Bruce, who he also was gay, so in a way, in his mind, he thought he was protecting Allison from the same kind of torments that he had when he mm-hmm. was a kid. And so you kind of see how this idea of self-expression and protecting protecting your kids from learning those harsh lessons comes from in a society that's about being that's about being that's about fitting into the box rather than just existing in your own box and so i think that you know in that way it's kind of i don't know i think it's a way of bruce showing allison that he cares and i think that older allison is reflecting on that moment and seeing that in a way that was him caring, even though at the time her hormones were raging and she's like, yeah, no, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it because I'm scared. And you get that duality because even though there is good and bad, when it comes to societal norms and the way that we teach our children about them, it, it, it's not black and white. There's a gray area and it's about the intent behind it mm-hmm. and the way that you get those things across.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think these are those are all valid points. I want to kind of build on that, and I want to point out that even in the lyrics that are said, we're exploring costume and what that means to identity and whatnot. In, in the beautiful song, Ring of Keys, yes, um, it starts with Grown Allison mentioning, you know, you didn't notice her, but I saw her the, photo. the moment she walked in. She was a delivery woman. She came in with a hand cart full of packages, she was an old school butch. So we immediately can imagine the short hair and everything like that, right? And in the chorus, she mentions your short hair and your dungarees and your lace-up boots. In every chorus, she mentions that. Why, why is the haircut, why is the hairstyle and the clothing so important that we have to sing about it? And what I, what I love about that is, it's about identity. Mm-hmm. We use our, our fashion and that as a form of identity. And this young girl notices that and goes, I identify. That's an identity that I identify right. with. She
1: didn't, I feel like up until that point, she didn't really know that that kind of identity could exist. So that's where, as a and kid. That's the
0: first time she's seeing something and goes, oh. And then she oh. sees what
1: she can be.
0: Yeah. And I love them when she says, nobody <coughs> else sees that you're beautiful. Wait, no, no, no. That's not right. You're handsome. And it feels right to say that. It's so beautiful, but we're going to get into that later. But then I want to point out, I mean, come on, you're a hair person. The evolution of Allison's hair. So we start with the typical, stereotypical girl, young girl hair, the way it's done. It's, you know, shoulder length and it's kind of curly. And she has
1: bangs. And then and... she
0: goes to middle age Allison in college and you see she's got like a bob.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: we get to allison fully grown and it's what would you call that i mean i don't want to call it a boy cut
1: i mean technically it's, it's a pixie but this is also th- that's also dipping into a larger conversation that i think we need to have about hair because you know people always call it like a men's cut or I, a pixie thing, cut it's, it's, but the it's, thing is is it's just a short it's a style. short cut but and by it's, the way if you look
0: up a picture of allison Bechtel, who is the author of the graphic novel and of course whose story this is it looks just like her. Beth Malone, who plays Grown Allison, that look that she has, she looks just like Allison Bechtel. Right. And so it lo- you can see that progression of identity.
1: Right. And so I would argue to say that it's not necessarily, I wouldn't call what Allison has a pixie cut. I would call it a barbered cut.
0: I I like that, yeah. Because I feel like
1: that does a better job of explaining it. Yeah. Because hair is genderless. It's how we style it that gives it its gender play. And you can definitely
0: see more of the discovery in the middle Allison stage. I mean, with Joan, the way that she's got that army fatigue and the... I mean, I would just say that Joan in the era that we're dealing with, which I would say I think is in the 90s, early 90s, she's... She's not pretty, she's not done up. We are leaning a little into the stereotypes there where I'm like, you clearly don't look like your stereotypical straight woman. You do look more like, mm, a little bit more butch but not quite what we'd call butch. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's how her costume with that heavy green coat and everything and the big boots presents itself. And I think that's one of the reasons why Allison is drawn to her because again, wow. Look at the way that you are able to be. And of course, they have that shared connection of, oh, wait, you can recollect Colette, and da, 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 you know.
1: Right. Well, and I think that that really just, I think this is a great segue into the direction.
0: Oh, Sam Gold's direction is so good.
1: So I will say that I think that Sam Gold did a beautiful job, especially paying homage to the fact that this is a lesbian story, right? This is a woman's story. And so as much as I, you know, ideally, I would have loved to have seen what this could have been done with, with a female director. But the fact that it was a male presenting director, he did a very good job of paying of Keeping a,
0: the female voice in.
1: Yes. Like he... It, it wasn't masculinized, which happens a lot when you start to really pick apart shows and you're watching directions because we we project our lived experiences in everything we do even when we're trying not to.
0: Yeah. And I will t- say one fun thing that we, we did this recent holiday season as... I will admit it, and I'm not ashamed, as we watched Hallmark Crystal's movie. It's a fun game that we played, Hope and I, is... Who wrote this movie? Was it a man or a woman? And it's really fun and surprising to see some of these films and even some of your favorite films. Who is behind it? Is it a man, a woman? Is it a team? Because you really, you start to realize, oh, that's why it sounds this way. Or that's why the movie tends to be this way. And I will say a lot of our favorites were by female writers.
1: Right. Well, and I think to kind of draw it full circle as far as that goes, and that's uh, the way that writing has been traditionally taught is to speak from a male perspective. Mm -hmm. And so when you have people who have been conditioned to think, how do males speak? Oftentimes it can sound disingenuous when they write for females, if they don't have a good full understanding. And so in especially mass-produced, quick-created movies, it's easier to hear the tones and be able to see, oh, this person didn't really know how to write for women, or this person didn't really know how to write for men. And that's what I also love about this show being such a queer piece, is once you get into queer people and queer culture, a lot of those lines get to be blurred because the thing that I that makes queer culture and the queer community so special is it is so good at looking inward to understand others yeah whereas oftentimes you don't get that in a heteronormative culture
0: yeah well it, it just shows how great this team was between the, the, the writing and the music and the direction. Everyone really was listening and paying attention and working strongly together. Because like I said, the direction of the show was so good. Everything on stage, was right down to the last move. I mean, it just, the piece, we saw this show four times, I believe, if memory serves me right. And every time it just felt alive. Yeah, it was the same show. Yeah, it was the same staging, you know? Choreography and all that. And yet it felt new and fresh. And that, to me, comes down to the direction. It felt like they were always exploring something.
1: And I think that even though there's there's not anything that I can find out there that reads like, oh, director Sam Gold used viewpoints in his, in his direction, blah, 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 blah. You can feel it because of the way that just even as a casual observer, you can notice the themes, where the themes hit, how the actors interact with each other and play within each other. So, yes, yes, this, yes, yes. This show was a brilliant musical placement of the directing style of viewpoints, which if that's something you don't know a lot about, I highly recommend reading Anne Bogart's book and go into a deep dive, but it's all about connection. And that's what this show is about, is connection.
0: This was one of the first shows on Broadway I ever felt like us as the audience truly were one of the cast members. We were that cast member that, we were a little late to call, sorry, because that's what I think made each show different was the audience, the way we were breathing, the way we were reacting to certain things, just everything about how we and our energy went affected how the cast was doing certain things. It could go as far as even, did it rain? Mm -hmm. Did someone get caught in traffic? Just, it felt so alive, and I think that was Sam Gold's direction of being like, okay, we do have to hit this mark and this mark because of the lighting cue or the set or whatever, but giving the... Actors, the freedom to just truly react to what's happening, I think just gave it more of that genuine feeling of that discovery. So I love, I I love Sam Gold as a director. But yeah, so this was an issue show, but what was great was it delivered that message without preaching, which a lot of shows, when they're an issue show... That's very hard to do. So we were able to sit, listen, receive. And I think on the whole, everyone left changed. That's the thing is I feel like the audience left changed. And that was the important thing. And we'll get into this later because this was a very interesting time in our, in our history. And so a very important time to be doing this show. So the last thing I want to talk about. I mean, we cannot talk about Fun Home and not talk about my homegirl and her music, Janine Tessori.
1: Janine Tessori. Janine
0: Tessori. <laughs> I, I just, I could write a love letter of a book to her. This was, I, of course, she won the Tony for this.
1: Right. And, she is uh, such a chameleon uh, when it comes to her sound.
0: Listen, I I know I've said this a thousand times, but truly, look up Janine Tessori, look up what she's written. No two shows sound the same. You will hear hints of other shows and they're like i could hear a little bit of violet in there i heard a, a snippet of carolina change maybe a, a hint of shrek but even when we saw kimberly akimba i had a moment where i was like "Ooh, this sounds a little bit like fun home you know but truly none of her shows sound the same and if memory serves me right you know violet had played before this as well as shrek so you had those two shows of hers that are recently played on Broadway, and then we get Fun Home. I mean, that is a completely different sound. And this music is so beautiful. And the simple orchestrations, I mean, it. if it weren't for the fact, I think that it was like, a, a no, screw it. Even if it was a musical, this is like the perfect Sunday afternoon or Sunday dinner soundtrack because it's not... Overbearing rock and roll, like it is. You can put it in the background for that beautiful, relaxing music. It's and the melodies are so haunting. Da 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 da, da, da. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and she also just the lyrics find a way to stick in your soul. I mean, if you listen to Ring of Keys and you can't be moved, you are stone.
1: Correct, because that I so. I just want to take a small moment really quick and talk about how the impact of Ring of Keys impacted me. So Ring of Keys, I think was a beautiful moment for me to have a inner sexual awakening because it brought up things that I could see that Allison was going through that I had never thought to question in the same way that. Allison did at the same time because of course me I'm not a I was I'm not a young lesbian you know and so I never thought that far but looking back on it on my own reflection of life I can see how there were things you know where I questioned you know do I like boys do I like girls do I like both and so I think Ring of Keys is just that beautiful hopeful piece of awakening It's an anthem. It's an anthem. It's an anthem. And I think that for the music to sound as hopeful and big and vast as it does, I think that that's a thing of beauty. And I think that Janine Tesori, that's what her brilliance is, is being able to adjust and find the the music within the story that gives it its own breath of life.
0: Yes. Well, and I also would say, I put her up there with Sondheim. And
1: I know that's a very, like, Whoa.
0: Okay, hold on, kiddos. Let me explain. Her music, lyrical. Her lyrics, amazing. But she has the incredible ability to communicate incredible emotion and thought through her music. And the song that comes to mind is Edges of the World. That spiral... Of just the spiral and the loss of control. If you look at the music, you can even just listen to it. The dissonance that's created and the way that that basically the meter stops and it's a free flow and it accelerates and you, you arrive, you know, and the edges of the world da, 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 and it's the time doesn't exist. You can just feel it spiraling and then we get to. I know time, bum, 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 bum. Truck, you know? Yeah. I mean it's she is so brilliant in that way to be able to use music. If you just listen to the music, it can communicate thought and words. We wouldn't need lyrics, but they just they're like frosting on top. And so when you pair that with brilliant actors like Michael Severus, Judy Kuhn,
1: Beth Malone, Beth
0: Malone, you know, it only amplifies that. 10 times more so i could listen to this beautiful music and the fact that she compared things like this funky disco beat come to the fun home or the fun 1960s like television oh, oh who the partridge family almost sounding music with this beautiful i don't want to call it but it is it's like folky music you know it's a beautiful ensemble that she's originated and I have never heard a show that is oboe-centered. Right. That's the first thing you hear when the show starts. And I'm like, is that an oboe? Did an oboe really just start a Broadway musical? She goes there. So, Janine Tesori, if you're listening, first of all, now I can die happy. Because Janine Tesori listened to our little show. But second of all, you are just so brilliant. You are an international treasure not just a national treasure. And I thank you for this masterpiece that you created that is Fun Home because it is just musically a treat, an absolute treat.
1: The show has had several notable performers, including Judy Kuhn, Beth Malone, Michael Cerveris, and Sydney Lucas. I mix with love The
0: stones and the trees the I don't know. So let's now talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. Starting with theatrical impact.
1: So I think that the most important theatrical impact that this show has made was the fact that the
0: poster was colorful. Absolutely. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Go ahead.
1: (laughs) The most important impact that this musical has had is the fact that the lyricist, the book writer, and the Composer. composer are females. And
0: all won the Tony Award.
1: And they all won the Tony Award. And the fact that we have a lesbian story written by a lesbian. So not only was the source material written by a lesbian, but the book and lyrics were also written by a lesbian.
0: Right. And I, I think that that is incredible. I mean, look, I didn't take the, the queer theater class in college. You did, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. Or listeners out there, correct me if I'm wrong. But this is the first, or I'll, I'll, you know what, to be safe, I'm going to take the Harvey Firestein path. This was the first Broadway musical about lesbians to make money. This was the first successful show. It might even be the first show on Broadway about lesbians, you know. But more importantly, it was the first theater show, musical, about a child, a gay child. I can't think of another musical I've seen where the child is, you know, we, and we delve into it, not just reference, like in a chorus line where it's like, yeah, I remember when I was, you know, I knew I was gay when I was 12. No, no, we actually go into the childhood and explore how they knew. What did they go through? And we see them grow up and we, you know, which a lot of people could relate to. So th- to me, that's another huge theatrical impact is that this is a story that depicted what a lot of people went through. You didn't have to just be a lesbian. You'd need If you were a queer person to be able to see your experience depicted, your struggle,
1: Right. Well, and also I think a huge impact is the fact that the creative team, the the female creative team was the leading force in this show and they won recognition in the Tony Awards for this. Yeah,
0: that, you know, Sam Gold did a great job in the direction, but the thing that everybody was talking about was the fact that this was a female-led design team. Mm -hmm. And, And, I mean, here we are in 2024 talking about that and it doesn't feel as big, but 10 almost 10 years ago, that was a big deal. That was a glass ceiling that was shattered. And it's insane to think that it was just less than 10 years ago that that ceiling was shattered. It's insane. And then it took that long to shatter. I, that's the thing. And it's like, what? And you know, of course, we've come a long way since then. And hopefully we keep going down that route. But yeah, and I, the other thing I'll say is I also think that it revolutionized storytelling. The way you could tell, the way time can be presented you know we can tell stories three different times at the same time
1: right and And our storytelling doesn't need to necessarily always be linear
0: exactly this is the way we can do it that way as for societal are we okay to move on to societal? yes so i want to first say because i know you got a lot of societal impact the biggest one for me is this was we talked about it being an issue show right? And I want to build on that. So this is a show when Hair came out a lot of kids would go to Hair because they loved it and they also wanted to show their parents about their lifestyle. This was an issue show where a lot of people could almost explain what they went through, how they felt, why they are the way they are and you know and, and they could bring people, their parents, whatever and you know, here's a way to explain it, right? But for me one of the Best things about this show when it came out was the show opened in 2015. There was something else that happened in 2015 that was incredible, and of course that was in June, shortly after Fun Home won the Tony. Gay marriage was legalized in America, and in fact, we, if you remember right, we were at Fun Home. Uh, I think it was the day after, and Beth Malone got the Pride flag during curtain call, and she ran up and down the stage, you know waving it and everything. It was it was a huge celebration because of course in this show Allison embraces herself and her identity as a lesbian. But she also embraces and loves and forgives her father.
1: For, for who not, he was. For, not, uh, for being closeted.
0: Right, but kind of like you were the way you were because of who you were and not being able to embrace and love yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And for, for the, our country, you know, I mean, we've taken a lot of steps back. But at that moment, for, for, for love to have won, you know, it's that, wow, this is like the, the, the epilogue to the mm-hmm. story. Not only can I be proud and accept who I am, but now society has also deemed it legal for me to love. And right. it was just such a celebration. So I think societally impact wise, this show made it okay to be who you were and showed that it's, oh, I mean, not to be cliche, but it gets better.
1: Right, so the direction I'm in go with societal impact is a long one, so strap in. So, first off, I want to talk about Alison Bechdel. Because one of the things that a lot of people know Alison Bechdel for is this. being the, the creator of the Bechdel Test. Yes. And what a lot of people don't know is that the Bechdel Test actually started out as a joke in her con, in her comic strip that was called Dykes to Watch, I believe is what it was mm-hmm, called. Mm-hmm. And this was also one of the first, like, so... For our younger audiences who don't know about this, in the late 80s, early 90s, and all through like a large portion of the 90s before we got the internet, there were these things called zines. And they were basically self-published magazines that people used to share thoughts and opinions that we now would probably go to Reddit or Tumblr or our Facebook pages to post, or even our blogs. So these zines were this written, Of exchange of ideas. And this happened a lot in the West Village and the East Village in New York City. And that is a large way that people were gaining momentum to talk out loud about being gay and lesbian and queer because before that you had lots of laws that were in place that prevented people from being able to do that and the only way that they could do it was in bars and clubs and in secret societies so that is the world that alison herself grew up in and that is that world that her father grew up in so now she as herself as an icon broke out of that and in her zines that were published that were passed and got to a more mainstream audience was the Dykes to watch. And that's where she came with the Bechdel test. And it started out as a joke and then gained momentum because it was a larger part of a conversation about inclusivity for females and female voices specifically. For those of you who don't know what the Bechdel test is, it's basically a way of picking apart a movie or testing a movie to see if it has Females who have female voices. And what I mean by that specifically is that they, they had the three criteria. And that had to be that two women were featured and that these two women talk to each other and discuss something other than a man. That is the three criteria, right? We have to have at least two women that are featured. We have those two women who talk to each other, and those that they discuss something that is not a man. So that alone is a completely brilliant idea, and Allison brought that to us.
0: Do you want to add that? Since Fun Home, the Bechtel test has also been brought into the world of theater.
1: Right, because it, it and it's a natural progression of things. Because yeah, we're telling these stories all the time, but are we telling? Female stories from a female perspective.
0: Exactly. That's why it's been brought in right? as we talked about who's telling the stories and who are they meant for, but continue.
1: So in Allison sharing her story, not only as she become, you know, becomes in herself as a queer woman, but she's sharing that experience of what her father went through. That was the exact opposite. And one of the things to note is she came out to her family and then a couple months later. Her dad killed himself because he was gay, and so Allison's response as a gay icon, instead of you know letting that hate win out, she went on a self exploration of it. And so I think the fact that Allison Bechtel exists and the fact that she has written her origin story as far as herself as a queer icon is a huge societal impact. It is a huge part of queer history. And it serves as a pillar, a mainstream media pillar for the youth to go back and look on to see what life was like before this show. Because I will say that is something I'm very happy for about the future is that everyone who was born after 2015 or grew up in the world after 2015 is living in a post-fun home world. And they don't have to go through the challenges quite as hard as... Allison did and the people before her. So I think that that's a huge impact. But second, this show serves as a as a history book. This is a historical this is a, this is a piece that when society and when anthropologists come back and study this show to get an idea of what our society was like, this show is going to be one of those things because of how well it describes this period in human life and the emotions that were going on behind it. So I think that this is this the historical impact of queer culture that this show has created I think is one of the best things that has ever brought to us. And as far as all that goes, it also had such commercial success that there are kids and young adults now that this is just a normal part of their musical theater experience. So the fact that we have these queer stories for them to pull from, to sing in their auditions in high school and to sing in their auditions in college, I think is a beautiful impact because it creates more representation in
0: our world. Yeah. And I would just piggyback on that to add and praise to Janine Tesori's score, It. It's so universally accepted and loved. I mean, I can even remember in Utah, in Utah, which granted is making changes. There there's changes happening, but in Utah, several productions of Fun Home being done. And this isn't just like at Pioneer Theater or, you know, the Twine House. This is like at a community theater in Twilla or Midvale. These are smaller theaters in more conservative areas that are doing the full production of Fun Home, that are telling this story. And the music is the gateway in because audiences buy into the music with the way it sounds and again this message it isn't preachy the story that isn't preachy it is is being told and the audience is like oh oh i just saw a queer story and i wasn't off put and i relate oh and it's a way to reach audiences across the board so i think that's a huge societal impact And now we've arrived at our final question to ask, which is, is the show still relevant?
1: The answer is yes, because first and foremost, this show teaches empathy.
0: I would go even a step further and say the show is very relevant, especially today because of the amount of adversity that the queer community faces. I think, sadly, the world of today is much more difficult for the queer community than the world of 2015. Mm-hmm. And it, it breaks my heart to say that, but I do feel like rights of our, our queer friends and family, particularly transgender, are are very much under attack. And it's not just rights, it's really livelihoods and safety. It's the, it's the and ability
1: to freely express yourself. And just as, be. Exactly. And just be. And, and we're not talking about people having opinions that they're spouting and getting hate for it. No, It is we literally
0: have, just existing on a day-to-day basis. The
1: fact that someone who is transgender can walk out of their house and be verbally and physically assaulted just for existing the way and that it they can, exist.
0: And it, it could be okay. It's not and it's not. It's not okay. And I mean, this isn't a political show. We're not going to get up on a political forum. But with that being said, the world is is a little bit worse, a lot of bit worse, than it was in 2015. And so I think a show like this, as you said, that teaches empathy or at least taps into human empathy is so needed. And I also think that just this beautiful story and this beautiful music... It, uh, it's always welcome and you know what is interesting is this is a biographical musical we haven't mentioned that i feel like we haven't used that word biographical so usually when we talk about if a show's relevant and we're like yes we'd like to see revival we usually throw in the idea of like what if we you know regendered it or what if we change the the race of the the characters in that, right? I don't know if you can do all that with this, with it being such a biographical show. That being said, it would be interested to see if they did that. You know, how what would Alison Bechtel say about that? What would she have to say about that? How far would she let how far would she let artistic liberty be allowed with her story? It would it would interest me, but I would be keen to know what would a revival look like? of the show, you know? And where would it play? Because I think the beauty of the original show was that it was done in the circle, in the square theater, in the round. And with more shows incorporating, redoing theaters to accommodate that, like Here Lies Love, you know? Would we do something like that with a different Broadway theater so we can accommodate that? Or, you know, what would we do? Or would we just go off-Broadway? There's no harm in doing off-Broadway. I think that'd be wonderful.
1: I honestly think that the perfect venue for this show, as much as I would love to see it again, this show needs to be done in more rural areas, in community theaters, in colleges, and in small playhouses. It lends itself to being available to do that because it's a modern show and it has a small cast. think orchestra. And so I think that it is more important... That this show be seen by more people who aren't constantly exposed to queer culture than it is for one of the meccas of queer culture to display
0: it. You know where it would be good at?
1: Hmm. Is the
0: Mitzi Newhouse Theater up at Lincoln Center? I disagree. Oh, I I, I 100% think I think that... No, no, no. Not, not their Broadway theater.
1: I know. I think that that would be...
0: Their 100-seat theater or
1: 150-seat theater. But I think that the people who would view that are the people who already appreciate it. And I think that this show does... Why can't it be both, though? It can be, but I think that there are better and more broader stories that can be done on a stage like that.
0: Fair, fair. Whereas can't argue this with show,
1: that. <laughs> this show, it would be like preaching to the choir. And as much as well, I love being preached to, I would rather this show go out and be able to do the most good it can If scenery. they're going to
0: do a revival, though, I don't want it to be the same as what we've seen. I want to see it be done differently. And that's why I'm like, I wonder... And I
1: don't think it's time for a revival yet.
0: I wonder what they would do. I well, the thing is, if we're going to do a revival, again, I want it differently, but I want to know... I, look, nobody pays me enough money because apparently I don't have the, the best ideas in the room. But I want to see with some of these great creative directors that we're starting to see come to the table with these amazing new works or these amazing revivals... What they come up with and go, we've got this great story and this great music. What if we do... I don't want to see what they come up with and change. Is changing the race turn the story on its head? Just changing... What if Alison doesn't have a gender? What does that do? If we take gender out
1: of the equation? Is... But I don't know if that's something we can do with this story, well, specifically because it's biographical. I well, Because Alison I mean. Bechtel is a real person that really exists. That's... And I think that maybe having a show that is inspired by... Well, that's where we might be the better answer. That's where
0: we might like come from it, so that it could be something to. Anyway, I would like to see what the future holds for it. But I agree with you and and the rural and the outside of New York communities. But I think we both are on the same page of is it relevant? Absolutely. We wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So as I mentioned, I'm pretty sure we've seen this four times, two in 2015 and two in 2016. I love this show. And one of my favorite things was we saw this show right after it won the Tony Awards. And we had the the entire original cast sign the poster. In fact, we have the poster.
1: Mm -hmm. Hangs...
0: Right down yonder, in my office, where I do all the editing, tra-la-la-la-la, right behind me. And it was so cool. And I mean, I look back now at the people we met. Like, at the time, the only person that I was, like, head over heels about was Michael Service. Because I was like, oh, I'd seen him in Evita, you know, and and that voice I just loved. And I knew that he had done Sweeney Todd with Patty LaPone, right? So this was really, really cool. But now I look back, and I'm like, oh, my God, Beth Malone from Unsinkable Molly Brown, and she's incredible. And Judy Kuhn, who, by the way, in Assassins by Classic Sages, was unreal.
1: She assassinated your expectations. That, wow.
0: You know, so these were incredible performers. So getting to meet the cast was amazing. The show itself was just so moving. Getting our picture against the wall with all the different keys of all the different cities, you know, where people Mm -hmm. had come from was amazing. I do think, however, my favorite memory was the the night after gay marriage was legalized, seeing Beth Malone run with that flag and just the energy in the room. Everyone, Mm -hmm. that curtain call went on for like 10 minutes and everyone, it was like one big celebration. It felt like for a whole week in the city of New York, it was just one big celebration. I mean... I love the fact that we were in the village when it was both legalized in New York and in the country. What a place to be. Mm -hmm. I got to get kissed by a drag queen in a wedding dress. That was amazing. You know. But on Broadway as well, like, I don't know. Everyone was not only celebrating these performers, but just, we felt closer. You know? And, And the only other time we've come close to that was when we came back from the pandemic so i mean i can close my eyes and i can see that curtain call still beth being cheered on by her castmates and by the entire audience and she's just wrapped up in it it's like the olympics you know and i just felt so much love my heart was full so
1: those are my memories yeah i mean most of my memories are about the impact the story has left on me i remember seeing the show i remember loving it But the parts that stick with me are how I felt listening to Ring of Keys the first time and how I watched Allison dissect herself on stage and just those feelings that she was kind of exploring, the way that she felt them and the way that they just stuck with me and led me to asking more questions about myself and about the world around me. Yeah. Hopefully you'll be able to catch a production of Fun Home near you sometime soon.
0: We also want to remind you that you can become a producer and patron of our show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar.
1: Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod.
0: So until next time... I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones.
1: Unwrap your candies.
0: And keep talking about the theater.
1: In a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe.
0: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at StageWhisperPod.
1: And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com.
0: You can also get more information about the show, your backstage pass, book a tour, pick up some merchandise, get tickets for a show, and more by visiting our website, Pod. Com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Kelly Lattimore and Billy Murray.